The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, breaking down what it means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll discuss the fallout from COVID unrest in China after protests broke out across the nation. What does it mean for China's reopening story? Plus, now that you've enjoyed that bountiful harvest of Thanksgiving, it's time to harvest something else. Tax losses. It's been a miserable year, and a lot of investors have had big losses, particularly in technology stocks and tech funds. We'll explore the ins and outs of tax loss harvesting with ETFs as investors look to close out the year. Here's my conversation with Brendan Ahern. He's the CIO of Crane Shares, along with Ben Slavin. He's the global head of ETFs at BNY Mellon. And Matt Bartolini, he's the head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. Brendan, let me start with you. Bulls argue these protests are going to hasten the process of reducing lockdowns and increasing vaccination levels, so they're optimistic. Mm -hmm. But I get bears arguing to me that more targeted lockdowns are going to continue regardless of the protests. So what, what is your position? What are you telling people? Well, certainly we've seen zero COVID evolve into dynamic zero COVID. So the government's been moving away from the very strict, the lockdowns right back in the spring with Shanghai. At the same time, they need a balancing act that they have a large segment, particularly their elderly population, is unvaccinated. So, so they don't want to hurt the economy. At the same time, they want to protect these uh, elder, this older generation. So I think the protests only accelerate the opening up process. You just have to move forward. The government's not tone deaf to what the population is saying. Yeah, and the investing public seems a little confused about this. I watched China overnight. Hong Kong was down 1.5%. Uh, Shanghai was down one and a half percent. A lot of big names were down. And yet we open here. China stocks are all up. Your your K-Web is up four percent this morning. There's the Hang Seng. That's the close uh, over in Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know. It seems a little confusing. They're not sure what to do with this. Well, I think the key read is that within the Shanghai and Shenzhen, which is 95 percent owned by investors in China, is that you have all of the reopening trades were up. Restaurants, hotels, airlines were the top performing subsectors. And then this morning you have Pinduoduo, the big e-commerce company, absolutely crushed their Q3 financial results. Uh, adjusted EPS was twice what analysts expected, uh, as well as you have the PBOC on Friday after the close, cutting the bank reserve requirement ratio. So some more support for for the financial market. So I think I think you see a little bit of a pivot here as China gets back to business post-party Congress. You know, Matt, um, you, you uh, have the, the Spider S&P China ETF, GXC, it's down 30%. Everything's down 30%. Yeah. K-Web's down 30% this year. Um, there's been a big debate this year uh, in the investment community and, and in the ETF community about uh, how to look at China as an investment itself. Uh, at the very least, political risk seems a lot higher than we thought it was going to be three or four years ago. Uh, Is China becoming a sort of separate asset class? I'm trying to figure out how should we be looking at this, given all of this obviously increased political risk that we're seeing. So I don't think it should be a separate asset class, but I think you can view it as a disparate sort of separate allocation 
within a portfolio and trying to gauge your EM interest and your emerging market allocation. And you know, perhaps going tactically overweight or underweight China based on your current views. I think when we talk to investors and they're trying to make a case for China within their allocation, there's sort of two aspects that I would look at right now. One is valuations because the market is down so significantly, you know, down 30%. Valuations are relatively constructive versus broad EM as well as versus just the U.S. or broad global equities. And the second part is liquidity. It is one of the few areas of the marketplace where central bank liquidity is increasing given the fact that the, the rate cuts by the PBOC, where the rest of the world were still going through rate hikes. So the valuation liquidity argument could make it as a standalone case for an allocation, not as a standalone asset class right now. But again, that's a huge contrarian play right now because of all that elevated macro risk. Forecasting that out, I think, is going to be inherently difficult. And that's why you have cheap valuations. Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you the same question, you know, Ben. Um, Has the situation in China changed the way we should view global investing. So years ago, we, sh- we assumed, all of us, uh, when I did these ETF shows, investors should own their allocation of the, of, of the world based on market capitalization. So if China is 15% of the market capitalization of the world, for example, then you should own a, a fund that represents 15%. Uh, and yet a lot of people are now in the last few years, given what's going on politically in China, have questioned that, saying this may not be the only way we should look at this. And there are other viewpoints that have emerged about this uh, from the, what I call the strict, we invest by market capitalization and we don't care where it is, to, well, you know, maybe we should reconsider and, and look at other metrics. It, does this matter at all in the discussion? Yeah, our clients are really struggling with how to play this market. And, you know, one of the things that's available now versus, you know, a long time ago was really the amount of choice you have in the ETF yeah. market. And that choice also creates a predicament as to how to position yourself in these markets. Right now, there's close to 50 ETFs that one way or another track China. And it's very important for investors really to look under the hood, which is one of the really great features of ETFs, to understand what you own because the performance differential, what those ETFs hold and the risk that investors are undertaking is very different depending on which one of those products you're in. But historically, they've been underweight China, but here again, um, it's been a kind of a struggle and we're seeing mixed messages from our clients. Well, I I have to say, I'm much more aware of this argument than I was three or four years ago, Bob. We need to... You can't just look at market capitalization. Then I get the value guys. The value guys, they don't care about any of this discussion. If it's 15 times forward multiple or less, I'm a buyer. If it's more than that, I'm a seller. You know, there's sort of like mechanical value guys that don't, Bob, you can debate the politics all you want. We don't care. We know we're value people. We know where we go, our entry points are, and we get in and out. And that's another way of looking at the whole. I think another way, too, is that on a market capitalization basis, and the market cap weighted indices are, are great for their use cases, asset allocation tools. But they somewhat are different in how global GDP is is generated. So they're much more geared towards U.S. equities, if you think on a global basis, where global GDP is actually more further you know, to the east. And you get uh, more sort of global GDP generated in areas like India and China that are represented within market cap weighted indices. So sometimes instead of using just a global market cap weighted broad based index, we say divvy it up and sort of try to reallocate a little bit more towards international stocks to be more reflective of how global GDP growth is generated. Problem with that is if you had done that in the last 10 years, you've really lagged that broad based benchmark because US equities have been so powerful. So it goes back to the valuation case where value stocks are international stocks right now, value stocks are Chinese equities, 
but sometimes things can be cheap for a reason, so you need to look for in, in, sort of increasing profitability alongside that valuation. Sort of developed XUS seems to be a better fit. Sounds like that quality, moment. you know, yeah. you're going yeah. for it. Yeah. Well, I, I think one, one issue in this debate is that, you know, if you look at MSCI emerging markets and MSCI China 10 years ago, 50% of those benchmarks was financials, energies, and materials. So at the start of a decade of growth decadence investing, the big blob benchmarks were basically value, value proxies. And so, so this China's underperformed, no. Within MSCI China, do you know how much was in tech 10 years ago? 2%. That 2% did two and a half times the performance of the S&P 500. So, so, I mean, I think that's part of what we've tried to do at Cranchers is give you uh, really exposure to those growth elements right. within EM and China, right. which the broad benchmarks have really so failed to deliver you. China is an example of the value underperformance that happened here in the United States as well. 100 yeah. percent. And if you had exposure within your EM or your China sleeve to those growth segments, you ran circles around the S&P 500. You just didn't get that buying the blob, buying the big beta proxy that you paid nothing for it, and so you got nothing in return. So let me, so you're the China expert here. What, let's go 30,000 feet. What's your best guess what happens here going forward? I mean, Xi Jinping, the guy in charge of China, is in a real dilemma right now. Yeah. If he essentially starts opening up, how can he do that without mass vaccination? I mean, he's really exposing the population. This is a very hard decision. Uh, they can't really keep locking down the country forever, but they're woefully unprepared, essentially, to open up. They, how do you get mass vaccinations, or am I keying on the wrong idea here? They, it seems like they're woefully undervaccinated. No, I mean, they've said the things they need is they need enough hospital beds, they need enough drugs in storage, and they need to more, a lot more effort in getting the elderly vaccinated to fully move away from, from dynamic zero COVID. At the same time, they can't afford to hurt the economy. So, so I think it just accelerates this path toward reopening. And zero COVID is never officially going away. I mean, they're, they're, that's never going to be admitted that this was a because it's kind wrong. of part of the official doctrine, and they can't backtrack on official doctrine. It's just bad they can things. only evolve the doctrine. I'm not putting words in my mouth. That seems what's going <laughs> yeah. on here. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's it's never officially going away. It will slowly recede into the background and slowly disappear. I just think what's happening right now with these protests only accelerates that trend. Yeah, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on China? Yeah, I would say it's a very tricky situation that China finds itself in. But again, on top of what's actually happening on the ground in China is really the macro picture of how it's impacting really investments globally, depending on you know, whether or not China reopens, how quickly that happens, and really you know, what uh, the Chinese government actually does here um, and how strict they want to continue this policy and, you know, to, to the extent it impacts things like supply chain and, you know, other markets, uh, really like oil, like we saw today, um, and other ways impacting supply. Yeah. And China, it's remarkable. This is why I go back to the politics and whether political risk is higher. They chose to basically move away from the vaccines we were using here. They chose, did not impose, I mean, they're imposing a crackdown on the country, but they didn't impose a crackdown to vaccinate people. That's what I find astonishing. It seems like they keep saying they're pro-science, and yet this didn't seem pro-science to me. It's, it seemed more like somehow it's going to go away if we just isolate. It's not. Yeah. We know what, the, what this is like. It's extremely contagious. Yeah. The minute you open up, you're going to get big outbreaks now. And the only thing is to vaccinate the whole population as much and then 
keep developing better vaccines, it seems yeah. to me. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the game plan is to move forward with the, promoting these inhalable vaccines where yeah. there's less stigma about getting a shot, you know. Um, Didn't, wasn't there a nasal vaccine that was approved yes, today? Yeah. Exactly. Sinopharm today, well, Sinopharm, after, after, right, after right. the Hong Kong close, announced that they're going into clinical trials. We've already seen the CanSino inhalable vaccine got approved for use in Shanghai. Right after that, 10 more cities signed on. So there's clearly a path to making the more digestible vaccinations happen. And big push toward the elderly. Yeah. Now, I want to switch gears for a moment. Bear with me here. We've all enjoyed the bountiful harvest of Thanksgiving the last <laughs> week. And I want to talk about harvesting something else, tax losses. It's been a rough year. We've been talking about this before we went on the air, all four of us for investors. Stocks down, bonds down. And a lot of investors have had big losses, particularly in technology stocks and tech funds. Tax loss harvesting allows investors to sell securities at a loss and offset those losses against capital gains taxes on other securities. So, Matt, um, give us some examples of how this. I, I had a discussion with you last week. You said... You've seen some signs investors are using ETFs for tax loss harvesting. Explain how this might work. Give us some an example. Of, of oh, yeah, definitely. So a couple examples. One is you have a mutual fund. You own a mutual fund that you know, tracks broad-based U.S. equities. That is obviously down this year. Now, perhaps it's an active manager who's also down relative to the benchmarks. So you're sort of down on both ends. That mutual fund might actually be lined up to pay a capital gains dividend because of the, the losses associated with the overall portfolio. And what you can do is you can, at this point in time, sell that mutual fund and then buy an associated ETF. And therefore, you're able to maintain your market exposure and harvest those losses in some of the areas of the marketplace. So I think that's one of the areas that we've seen. And then you can also see it within just ETFs in its own right. So again, selling broad-based equity exposures and then buying back into another ETF that covers a very similar marketplace. And I think on the mutual fund side, the biggest way to sort of point towards this type of activity is that we've seen basically about $750 billion of outflows in mutual funds, while you've seen roughly about $600 billion of inflows into ETFs. So you can start to see some of that rotation. Where I, I want to get that number again, because it's been remarkable we're getting inflows still this year. But um, $700 billion outflows from mutual funds more than 500 billion inflows into ETFs. So I guess the question is, where's the money going? Is, is there any, on the topic here, is any of this money potentially due to tax loss harvesting? Is some of this? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it on the face are from tax loss harvesting. Some of it is just the acceleration of the great migration out of mutual funds and ET, into ETFs from a tax efficiency perspective, but also from a cost efficiency perspective. But I think when we look at it, you see roughly about 60% of all flows into ETFs this year have gone into very low cost ETFs. And I think that's a very clear sign of some tax loss harvesting motivation. But that's been going on for years. It I has. Mean, that's just macro trend in ETFs. It has, but I think you've seen an acceleration of it this year because those low cost ETFs have taken in more share flows this year than they did in the last two years uh, individually. The other big thing is that one of the tactics that we see utilized within clients' portfolios in tax loss harvesting is to just lower your costs. Lower your costs, go into a lower cost exposure, harvest some losses, and maintain that allocation into a market exposure like U.S. equities, like emerging market equities, as we've just all discussed. China's down big. China's a big part of emerging market equities. In emerging market equities, we've seen anecdotally from our clients and what their motivations have been, some uh, big tax loss harvesting trades out of competing emerging market ETFs into some of ours. So, Ben, uh, not only has it been a rotten year for stocks, it's been a rotten year for bonds, too. Um, we've seen 
outflows in bond mutual funds, and uh, I have 154 billion into fixed income ETFs. I think you gave me this. Yep. 446 billion out of fixed income mutual funds, and, and rising. And here's another example where potentially there's tax loss harvest. Yeah, fixed income actually is the really big story. And this trend is something that we've seen accelerate. And certainly the outflows out of bond mutual funds present some opportunity for investors, again, not just with equities, um, but also in the fixed income arena as well. And we've seen this structural shift, again, out of mutual funds into ETFs. And part of that is because of the losses that we've seen this year in the bond market have accelerated some of that selling. And then again, the structural shift just generally for investors' preference towards the ETF structure, creating those opportunities. And so we think you know, some of that really is around harvesting losses. Some of that also is around repositioning the investor's portfolio as well. So it's not simply about just harvesting your losses. It's, a, it's the right time of year to take a look at the portfolio that you have and understand how to position yourself um, you know, in these markets. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword there. There's, speaking of double-edged sword, it's like a triple-edged sword for mutual funds. This is just a horrible year for, for mutual funds. Not only are they down, most, as you said, most active funds underperform their benchmarks, so they're underperforming there. Then if they're an active fund, they might also have capital gains. I'm waiting for this disaster to emerge from some active mutual funds hitting, you know, some of these people with, what? Wait, I'm down 15% and I have how much in capital gains? What? Mutual fund investors are in for quite a nasty surprise. And a lot of the mutual fund companies have already provided estimates on, your, on their website, so investors can take a look and see what their expectation would be around the capital gains and what kind of tax bill they're going to get at the end of the year. So from a tax loss harvesting perspective, the time for investors to act actually is right now. Because at the end of the year, whether it be January or February, by the time you get that bill, it's too late. So in order to take advantage of these opportunities, it's something that needs to get taken care of really before the end of the year. And that information is starting to trickle out uh, into the market, typically on the websites and you know, through many of the major market yeah. data providers. And for too. people, again, this is that educational moment to explain to people the difference between ETF and a, and a mutual fund. In a, in a mutual fund, you may, you may have active managers making trades uh, that result in taxable events. Uh, but when you're buying and selling ETFs, of course, it's a different situation. You might want to you explain that to everybody, the difference here. This is that teachable moment. Here. Yeah, so within a mutual fund, if I was a holder of shares of a mutual fund and I would redeem my shares, the portfolio manager would go and have to sell securities to fund that redemption order. In ETFs, very simply, the creation redemption, creation redemption mechanism takes place in the primary market and I'm trading my shares in the secondary market. So I'm selling my shares to a market maker and then they are redeeming those shares yeah. from And that the does eight, not create a taxable that's event. That's not created a taxable event because those transitions are usually ha uh, done in kind. So it really limits the sort of taxable events within the ETF structure. And that's why on average, historically over the last 10 years, only about 6% of ETFs historically have paid cap gains in a given year. Conversely, mutual funds pay about 60%. So about 60% of mutual funds pay capital gains in a given year, both active and passive, but on the majority side, on the active side. And I think in 2018, what we saw, because that was a year where both stocks and bonds were down as well, we saw roughly 35% of all mutual funds have this sort of the three true bad outcomes. They were down, they were down relative to the benchmark, and they got levied with a capital gain. 
And that's a significant amount of assets yeah. in the numbers of trillions with yeah. a very big capital. Now, team. by the way, you're talking about redemptions here, but if you have an actual active fund manager in an ETF wrapper, mm -hmm. you can still have situations where he, they generate capital gains but because it's much, they're trading. But it's much less. So historically active ETFs, they you know, roughly, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10%, high single digits, uh, perhaps of a percentage of pay capital gains dividends in a year. Because what happens is, you know, not every trade has to go through the primary market. We have some funds in our lineup that have very robust secondary markets where you can trade $200 million worth of shares back and forth and never touch the primary market where it leaves the PM to have to trade securities on buy or sell side. Yeah. And that speaks to the benefits of ETF from an ETF tax efficiency. Right. You're just buying and selling the ETF, not the underlying. Right. And that's Correct. the key. That's the I big know deal. we've been a little bit obstruse here, but it's important to explain to everybody exactly how this whole thing happens. Uh, and I appreciate everybody. We were going to talk about tax loss harvesting exclusively, but the Chinese events over the weekend made us switch gears a little bit. And thank you, Brendan, for joining us on such very short notice. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Ben Slavin from BNY Mellon. Ben, thanks for joining us and staying with us. Uh, one of the things that has happened this year um, is because the year has been so difficult, it seems like we've seen a bunch of ETF closures this year. Is there an unusually high risk of more ETF closures? Would that be a good or bad thing for the market? Certainly, when the markets are down like they have been this year, it always elevates the risk of closures, without a doubt. You've also seen an incredible explosion in product development in the ETF market. So if you look at last year was a record year, we're going to be just off the record pace this year. We'll see where we land. But there's been so many products that have come to market, it has put the squeeze on certain issuers. Certainly the smaller issuers or smaller funds um, tend to be at risk. And that's put, you know, and again, with the markets the way they are, that's put, you know, quite a bit of pressure on those managers to really keep those funds open and continue to fund them as they wait either for the markets to turn or, or just simply uh, trying to get through and uh, the marketing clutter that's out there in the ETF space. Yeah. If you've got a, I mean, just think about this simply, if you've got a 15% downturn in the market and you're, you're priced by price, you know, you're charging 10 basis points or 20, whatever, um, you're making less money even if you haven't had mass redemptions? Well, look, the cheaper the expense ratio is, which is a great thing for investors, the harder or the higher the hurdle rate is to actually make a profit. So those two things are working in exact opposite um, ends of the spectrum. And so again, with that fee pressure is one of the things that is, again, causing that hurdle rate for asset managers just yeah. to frankly keep the lights on for the ETF. And so we're starting to see um, you know, an increase in, in these closures. So I guess my question would be, as a market watcher, there's almost 3,000 ETFs out there right now. There's sort of what I call peak everything occurring. Uh, peak everything was, Netflix a couple years ago talked about peak streaming. There's peak podcasting. There's peak, uh, you know, entertainment. More TV shows than ever and probably will decrease. Um, so we also see peak ETFs perhaps. Um, do we need 25 China funds necessarily is my point. I mean, do we need vast quantities of leverage and inverse ETFs that 
I, I don't know how much they really add to the intellectual value of everything. Yeah. But. Well, there's uh, there's not even 25 China ETFs. There's almost 50 now. So they've uh, you know sort of duplicated that, right? The, the real answer is. It's hard to say, but just when you think you've seen every ETF under the sun, here comes something else, right, new to the market. And one of the things I sort of was attracted to originally about getting involved with ETFs in the first place was around innovation. And so you have seen this year categories of ETFs like single stock futures or single stock ETFs that are you know, brand new that weren't right. even contemplated a couple right. of years ago. And here we go again, and we're seeing a, you know, a wave of new ETFs. I would say another area that I would expect uh, to see more of, and certainly an area of innovation, is these target income or option income ETFs, which have become quite popular, especially in this market. And again, another category where just when you think yeah. you've seen everything, but here we go. do you think this kind yeah. of comes and goes with fads? I mean, single stock ETFs were quite popular early on, and yet they've dropped off. Tesla's one of the only ones that have gotten any traction there. Does the world need a Pfizer, you know, single stock ETFs? It doesn't seem that there's much of a demand for that. So initially, eight months ago, we were all saying, oh my God, is it going to be 500 single stock ETFs, one for the entire S&P 500, and an inverse well, and a leverage one, and I'm not sure the demand's there necessarily. Yeah, my my roots go back in product development in the ETF market for a long time, and and traditionally, when you look at these strategies, whether it's a, a Pfizer or a, you know a Netflix a single stock ETF as an example, or just any basket of securities, you have to have a, a certain amount of patience until the market sort of tailwinds at your back or you're able to break through from a marketing and distribution standpoint. Because really, if you try to launch it when the market is hot, it's always too late. You're always going to be chasing that, and it, you just cannot bring the, the product to market fast enough. So part of it is trying to really anticipate what investors are going to want 6, 12, yeah. maybe 18 months down the road. And that is a very hard thing right. to do. Some work, and some, some don't. don't. Speaking of what's had a tough year, uh, crypto assets. Uh, a year ago, we were talking with ProShares about the Bitcoin Futures ETF. It was a huge launch, huge assets under management. So, you know, when you're down, what, 75% or so in some of these, uh, in, some, in Bitcoin this year, it makes it very tough. So here's another classic area where we've had a very rough year overall. Uh, the asset class is certainly not going away, um, yet the prospects for a Bitcoin ETF seem more remote than ever to me, given what's happened. Uh, if anything, uh, the reluctance of the, the, the head of uh, uh, the main regulator out there, Gary Gensler, head of the SEC, he's been reluctant to approve a Bitcoin ETF. His position has seemed strengthened to me by what's happened. So there's another area of product innovation that comes and goes. And, but this is all part of the natural wave of investing. We saw this with tech ETFs, you know, with thematic tech. We saw this with pot stocks. Yep. You know, we saw this with all sorts of subclasses that kind of come and go depending on what investor interest is. And the, the, the Jack Bogle in me, Bogle was the founder of Vanguard, as you know, used to always ridicule this, saying you're chasing investor fads, and if you look at over long periods, it all evens out, right? It does, if you would have just owned an S&P 500 fund over 20 years, go ahead, pick. You're not going to outperform. Yep. As I get older, I keep thinking he's right about this, even though I love when I hear investors get enthusiastic about pot stocks six or seven years ago, or crypto three or four years ago, or single stock, and it all kind of evens out. Yep. There's, without a doubt, um, 
That said, I think there's, there clearly is a market for these products. Whether we need 2,000 or 3,000, I'm not really sure. But one of those key attributes of ETFs has been about really democratizing some of these areas of the market to make it easy for investors and to do so at relatively low cost. And what we've really seen, uh, a, a fundamental shift from the early days in the market um, to now is really around ETF models, where we're seeing an increasing use of ETFs really as a toolbox for advisors and professional managers, also institutional managers, to really use ETFs as a way to you know, provide some mix of asset allocation and do so, again, cheaply, cost-efficiently, and, and, and with, you know, with liquidity as well. But yeah, Bob, you're right. I mean, the S&P 500 has is, 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 is been hard to beat, and it's been hard to beat for a That's long, long time. The greatest thing to watch uh, covering ETFs for 20 years is to watch the, the triumph of, of indexing and to watch all of these advisors from these big wirehouses leave, set up their own registered investment advisor, Accounts and the first thing they do is they realize they can't charge two percent or even even one and a half percent. One percent is a big threshold to get over, and the only way they can charge one percent or close to it uh, is to use ETFs. Yeah. That's the only vehicle that makes sense. If I'm setting up, if I worked at Morgan Stanley and I'm setting up an RIA uh, by myself, and one percent is my maximum threshold. As a cl- that I can charge clients, I better find a lot of stuff out there that's 10 basis points, 20 basis points. And I know a lot of RIAs that charge 80 basis points. Well, that is a big piece of why you're seeing the flows go towards these low-cost ETFs, because mm-hmm. they are looking to manage that all-in fee of, let's say, 100 basis points. So the more they gobble up from expenses, right, in higher-cost ETFs, that eats into, you know, whatever the advisor is charging. Mm-hmm. But it was funny. I, I think, you know, when I started out in, in the ETF business, it was always um, the advisors who were basically buying and selling loaded mutual funds. Yeah. And then they would tell me on the side, oh, by the way, I, I own ETFs in my, my personal yeah. account, but, but for my clients, I'm going to put mutual Give me a funds. Look That's ahead changed. At, yeah. Give me a look at it 2023. Um, is, uh, it, it, is there any, what's the single stock ETF craze of 2023 going to be? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what's is there something thematically that you see out there that's going to catch investor interest in 2023? Yeah, I, I think, look, from a, just from a macro point of view, um, I, I see and quite bullish for ETFs in terms of flows going into next year. Whether or not we'll see a record, I'm not sure, but I think unless we have a market crash or, or something craters in the market, I, I think it's going to be a very strong year for ETFs for a variety of reasons. Part of, part of it structural shift, part of it tax loss harvesting, part of it fees. In terms of the products, you know, it's hard to say. I I guess I don't have a crystal ball, um, but I do think there's going to be quite a bit of additional flow and product development into, I would say, more sophisticated strategies, these, again, target outcome or defined outcome ETFs that provide, you know, some sort of an investment exposure with an options overlay, whether that be for income or or a a market hedge is something that I would expect to see more of going into next year for sure, especially given these markets. And yet, no matter what, the one thing I feel perfectly confident in saying is plain vanilla ETFs are still going to get the majority of the inflows for exactly the reasons we, we just talked about. And there's, they do. Well, there's something that's not particularly brilliant observation. And they make. do. And that's going to continue to gobble up the assets. I would say, though, on a lower base, we are looking at and expect active ETFs to continue to tick up 
in terms of their share of flows. That said, it's <laughs> off a very small yeah, base. Right. And, and those large passive ETFs, the, the, the SPYs, the VTIs are going to continue to gobble up the lion's share of assets. I don't expect that to, to change at all going into next year. I think we'll see more of that same from that standpoint. Ben Slavin, thanks very much for joining us. Ben is the global head of ETFs at BNY Mellon. And thank you for listening to the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.